0: The Cannabis Professor, a marijuana science and culture podcast, broadcasting from Pennsylvania to the rest of the nation and the world. Thanks for joining me on the show and welcome. My name's Scott. I'm your cannabis professor. And today we're going to go one layer deeper into the human endocannabinoid system in what is our part two of taking a look at the ECS. Uh, Two main things we'll look at today are going to be CB1 and CB2 receptors, as well as the binding. And that way, we can figure out exactly how our cells get high. Now, this is a continuing series, as I mentioned. It's part two. In part one, we took a look at what makes up the endocannabinoid system in general, uh, which are two main things, the cannabinoid receptors and the endocannabinoids themselves, the binding molecules are the ones that go to the receptors and create the Changes. They're also known as ligands. So, receptors and ligands of the cannabinoid variety. And then we also took a look last week at two of the endocannabinoids themselves. And those are the cannabinoid molecules that our bodies make naturally, you know, the ones that we don't have to smoke or vape to get some work done. And those two are otherwise known as AEA, anandamide, uh, arachidonyl ethanolamide, if you care as well as 2-AG, which is glycerol, And these are sort of our internal THC and CBDs generally. I mean, not actually, but close enough, right? Sort of ishly. And we also took a little look at receptors in general. You know, uh, endocannabinoid receptors are called G protein coupled receptors as they are that style, although there are many types of receptors and These GPCRs are also known as seven transmembrane receptors, which means the proteins that the receptor is made of actually goes in and out of the cell membrane seven times. Uh, And this is what it does to create what we ended with, which is this idea of second messenger systems, the idea that something might come to the door and deliver a message, but that message might not be exactly what's delivered once it gets in the cell. There may be a secondary action of who the message goes to and then what the message says itself. So really what we've been doing in describing some of these pieces is describing the level of complexity and the level of variety that cannabis has in potential when interacting with our bodies. So although when I started looking at a lot of this stuff personally, I was trying to figure out exactly what was going on. I ended up finding out more, like in art, exactly how much possibility there is in what's going on. So, as we move from those initial thoughts to the next layer of sciency science, we're gonna take a look at CB1 and CB2 a little closer and see what they do on their own, what kind of jobs they fill in the body. And then secondarily, we're gonna take a look at the nuances in how receptor binding works and happens which is then us looking at really telecommunications in a way. And to help understand some of these things, if you've been listening up to this point, then you already know, I will employ a horde of uncommon and awkward metaphors to get through it. So, firstly, we'll take a look at the cannabinoid receptors themselves, CB1 and CB2. And as we said last week, they're both GPCRs or G-protein coupled receptors, which are receptors made of protein chains that weave through the membrane. Now, in the GPCR family itself, when you're just looking at G-protein coupled receptors, cannabinoids or CB1 and 2 make up two of what are thousands of types of GPCRs categorized so far. So again, variety, right? And they've shown that GPCRs can respond to a bevy of triggers. Not only just cannabinoids in this case, but in other ones, they respond to hormones They may respond to neurotransmitters, lipids, which are just oils and fats kind of category of molecules. And even in some instances, uh GPCRs respond to light. Now, not to go too far off topic, but when I saw that in doing research on this, you know, it kind of made my mind uh think of some other things because in at least America, there's a lot of independent thinking and there's a lot of shame, right? And Some folks, uh, as I currently am in Pennsylvania, and it is the end of February, which means super winter time. Uh, Outside, I'm sure there's somewhere between two inches and a foot of snow, depending on where you measure, based on the last like three to four snowfalls we've had in two weeks. And some folks, when they're in the dead of winter, dealing with so much cold and so much darkness... Uh, they start to go through what is called Seasonal Effectiveness Disorder. And depending on who you ask or when you mention it, you may find an audience which is like, Bull shit. There's no way I'm going to let somebody call out of work. There's no way I'm going to let somebody excuse themselves or their behaviors due to the fact that it's winter. Like, too bad. We live in a 24-7, 365 world. You're going to have to do it every day, all day, answer those damn emails. But if we can see from the basic biological level that some switches in our body respond to light, are sensitive to light, that means we have to keep in mind the level of effectiveness, the level of sensitivity that we inherently have with our environment, not only just with things that we eat and things that we inject, but also just basic light can change the conditions of the way the body operates, uh, the light sensor that is our body can be affected in many ways. And that means that if it is wintertime and you're either getting no light or in some countries where there's a lot of light, like in California, and you get way too much light, you know, quote unquote, this may be one of the factors to consider when you're using cannabis amongst other things. Because maybe the reason your high was so good is because it was a sunny day, not just because it was a good strain. And maybe the reason why you really enjoyed that movie or that date or that any situation is because it was nighttime. And for whatever reason, your body was in a state where less light puts you in a better, at least internal situation to deal with what you were going through. So this is a constant, obviously, right? Because the sun is never at the same spot twice in a day. It is moving constantly through the sky. The planet is constantly rotating around the sun and then rotating about its own axis. And then we are constantly in flux as well. So we have to consider the variety, even beyond cannabinoids and receptors, just in the world we're in, we're absorbing things we may not even perceive. They may be affecting us more than we give them respect for. And so it's just worth being aware of, you know, nothing too crazy. However, I digress. Going back to CB1 and CB2, thinking of them specifically in the GPCR family, if you look it up online, because one of my first things I did when I was learning about this is I thought, well, where the hell are they in the body? Because, sure, they exist just about everywhere. Depending on what you read, they'll tell you more or less of where they exist. But in a lot of the graphics, they just show a couple of dots on the body of here's a couple spots they would be in and you will see a different color dot for CB2 and here's where that might be. But when they're talking about where it's found in the body, it's, it's, a, it's a tough sentence to write because what we're really looking at is how much they are expressed or concentrated in certain areas. And that is, is a math answer. You might have between 10 and 40,000 receptors on a cell, let's say, right? And as I mentioned last week, not all of them are ready to do work in the moment. Some of them are waking up. Some of them are going to bed. And so that's why we say expressed or concentrated. We're talking about the ones that are in the moment of action, part of the situation, because not everybody in a crowd is clapping at the same time for whoever just performed. So the sound of applause isn't just everybody clapping at 100%. Some people are clapping as hard as they can. Some people are clapping just a little bit. Some people are not clapping at all. Some people are whooping and hollering instead of clapping. And From this crowd of thousands of actions, we hear a general sound, right? Of the applause of the audience. But the applause is actually like a bazillion different sounds combining into one big wave of energy. And I would say that is one of the best ways to describe cannabis in the body. It is thousands of receptors expressing thousands of different feelings, which seem to combine into one general experience with many nuances. Or, you know... Uh, many general experiences with many nuances. And that way, we can then generalize safely and say CB1, when you look at it, is actually expressed primarily in the CNS, the central nervous system. So we think often spinal cord, nerve cells, brain cells, areas where the nervous system primarily exists and functions. Now, as we said, it's found in smaller amounts all over the body or in smaller concentrations but we know that if you're going to use cannabis and CB1 gets targeted, it should mainly create changes in the CNS as well. Now, CB2 is expressed more in immune tissues in humans, so lymph nodes, spleen, bone marrow, the GI tract as well. And of course, just like CB1, it's found all over the body in varying amounts, but mainly concentrated in these other immune functional areas. Now, that being said, Some folks like to think of CB1 as sort of the heady receptor, the one that creates more perceivable high. And CB2 is more of the body receptor, more what I think like the vitamin one, where it may be doing things, but it may be a little bit underneath of what you can perceive and put your finger on. And although that is a massive oversimplification, it's actually not that bad of one. And uh, as we dig into them further, we're going to see why. So let's peel back the label on CB1, see it's born on date, see exactly what it potentially can do. And, uh, you know, they both kind of have a list of possibilities. CB1 says uh, it has a potential to influence things like pain perception, appetite stimulation, memory processing, motor control, our ability to use our reward system, our mesolimbic dopamine pathway. These are all primary areas that CB1 can affect. And I would agree because, uh, at least for me, when I use marijuana, sometimes I get the munchies, right? And that seems to be the feeding regulation that we mentioned, the appetite uh, modification. Uh, If you've listened to the show a while, sometimes you've noticed I will repeat stories, right? And in my own personal life, sometimes I lose my phone or keys or I space out for a little too long. And that all seems to be dealing with uh, focus and or memory processing. Uh, Recently, I'm happy to announce I was able to stop taking ibuprofen on a daily basis. Despite my back issues, uh, I use cannabis almost entirely now for my pain management. And so that seems to deal with our our ability to perceive pain. And of course, I am probably not alone in this. But I have definitely uh, burned a couch or two in my time by... Intercepting a joint wrong or fumbling or making an incomplete pass. And I would say that definitely feels like motor control being affected. So, all those claims make some sense in my experiences. And I would imagine you might have your own stories that might align up with some of those effects. Now, that means that CB1 can be the target receptor when you want to affect the more perceivable range of things in your health, you know, things you'll notice. Uh, things you're likely to feel more clearly like a high. So that might be a bit of the body stimulation, a bit of the couch lock, a bit of the uh, brain mechanics. Whenever that's being triggered, you know, the traditional feelings of marijuana are usually full in season. But then there was old CB2, right? CB2 in the other corner is generally seen to affect immunomodulatory factors. So there's a laundry list of potential benefits, things like helping control the inflammation response or anti-inflammatory responses. Apoptosis, which is a fancy word for programmed cell death, cellular suicide, you know, getting rid of old cells before they uh, start creating issues. Homeostasis, as we mentioned before, the ability for the body to seek or maintain the conditions of internal balance against internal and external factors. Things like digestion, mood stability, cellular health, and more. So CB2 seems more like the target when someone wants to activate the potential of healing from the inside of their body outward from their immune system. And so we often feel it is less perceivable in its potential. Now again, it's not absolute because we know that these these receptors are on many cells in our body outside of what we mentioned, specifically in the concentrated areas. So much like the audience we mentioned, it's not CB1, give me a a, hey, yeah, now, and CB2, then it's your turn. They're constantly working together, being manipulated and stimulated and bound to. And just from what we said here, you know, you can now understand why people do say CB1 is likely what makes you feel more of the head high, and CB2 may be more likely what you feel in the kind of body high or the body wellness feeling, where everything marries together and you kind of feel... You know, you, you just feel good. It's not just the mood. It's, it's an overall feeling of fulfillment. You know, the simplification we did earlier isn't really that bad of one. It is abnormally simple, of course. So once again, as we're thinking about it, a lot of these effects and how possible they are, we have to be reminded, just like we said during the uh, absorption series of episodes, that you never get 100% of anything in the body. There's just nothing in the world that exists at 100%. It's really just a, you know, 100% is just a math ratio we created, it may not really be real. So when we're thinking about CB1 and 2 and we think about the binding agents, the molecules or the ligands that come in, we know that the results are going to vary greatly, you know, not only in potential, but in actual. So although a ligand will bind to a receptor like a lock and key in its specific application, the results of that binding create more of like a, like a dimmer switch or a steering wheel of effects where there's many degrees of use and direction, not just an off and on state. And so in that way, when we're looking at receptor binding, it's kind of like being an adult, looking at teenager dating habits. You know, there's a lot of flirting, right? There's a lot of attention, but there's not a lot of commitment, right? There's not a lot of 100% of anything. There's an abundance, it seems, in these types of relationships that are possible. You know, we're we're just chilling. We're just hanging out. We're going out. We're dating. It's my boyfriend. We're going steady. I pinned her, whatever. You know, over the last 150 years, I feel we just make more words up to mean less when we're talking about relationships, dating, and that level of relating. So we know the labels are constantly redefining things. And in the human body, it seems very similar. Even when things are intimately bound together, there's still the potential that it's not 100%. So taking a look at the binding relationships is its own science. And so this is the second piece of what we look at today. What I call the agonists and antagonists category. But there is a third, an allosteric modulator we're going to talk about. And so we'll just look at CB1 and CB2 as we go through the binding relationships. But we do have to understand that these, these binding relationships exist in every receptor, in every cell on our body, and that means hundreds of thousands, millions and trillions of things going on every second, creating the general feelings we have, the general thoughts we have, the general, uh, you know, awarenesses we have. And so, you know, variety is obviously the spice, right? It's kind of hard to get away from at this point. So, in the one corner we have CB1 or CB2, the cannabinoid receptors. And in the other corner we have the ligands that bind to them. And much like a high school dance, we're going to see exactly how they, uh, how they start to interact. So, the first thing we think of is positive interaction. What they call an agonist binding to the receptor. Agonism in a noun form. And just for the sake of it, uh, we will weave in a little bit of variety. You can positively bind to create an effect to a receptor in many ways. And so there is partial agonism, there is full agonism, there is inverse agonism. So even when you're binding in this particular way, there's a couple, couple ways it can go. So an agonist is a ligand or a molecule that occupies a receptor and activates it. So when it's binding to that receptor and it creates this response, uh, we consider that like a plus response, right? It is an active response. And although we'll go over in the third episode, we'll take a deep look at THC, CBD, some other cannabinoids and figure out where they fall in this relationship. THC, for instance, binds to CB1 and CB2. It is an agonist of both of those receptors. Now, it is technically like a partial agonist of one and it changes its relationship qualifier, but for the sake of simplicity, it is an agonist. You know, it's going steady. It, it is able to go to CB1 and CB2 and interact and create a uh, potential effect. So they bind together at the active site is what we call that, the orthosteric site which means active. Now there's an opposite, right? And this is sort of the villain in a story, what we would call the antagonist. Now, of course, in literature, the agonist would be the protagonist, but for the sake of ease, if you want to think of the agonist as the protagonist, uh, I don't blame you. Pro kind of means they're creating that positive effect. They're moving the story along, right? Advancing the plot. So the THC is an agonist or a protagonist at CB1 and CB2. Now, the antagonist fights the protagonist in, in novels, right? In stories. The villain is preventing the hero from doing whatever the hero is trying to do. So, we would think of the antagonist like defense. It prevents or weakens the action of the agonist. And this is where we get a little sporting, right? We're going to flip the script a little bit and say, depending on what country you're in, depending on what sports you like, we're going to talk about football, And whether or not you're into American football or international football, which we call soccer here rather insultingly, they thankfully function the same as far as the strategies. There is an offense and there's a defense. And they're on the field. And some players will try to move uh, the ball towards the goal, right? And some players will try to prevent that, dare I say, weaken the action or oppose it. And so if the offense were the agonists, the defense would be the antagonists. Now, it doesn't mean that the agonists don't still succeed in some way, right? Even with the defense on the field, you can still score. But it means it's harder to do so. So it weakens the action. It limits the ability. Instead of you just kicking the ball in the net or running into the touchdown zone willy-nilly as much as you like, now you have to overcome some blockage, some, something in the way. And that means you're not going to be as effective. So certain chemicals you take in, certain drugs you take in, the experience isn't nearly as potent as other times. And that might mean that not only is the binding potentially weaker, but maybe there's something else present which is blocking that binding from happening. Now, the area of science where they really find a lot of use for antagonism because really we generally want the body to do things, so why would we want to block the body from doing things, right? What's the use in stopping the uh, offense of your body from scoring, you know? Scoring almost sounds like a good thing. If my body's scoring, that's like it's promoting health. Good things are happening, you know? But uh, in my specific case, it's not always a good thing that the body's left up to its own devices. As a late teenager and as a guitar player, I started to have kind of feelings in my hands that were uh, a little bit perturbing, right? Ooh, pins and needles, sometimes you, you lose feeling in a finger, wondering what's going on, you know, starting to get hard to use my hands over time. And eventually after some testing, they show that I have the elevated enzyme, which shows a likelihood of the presence of rheumatoid arthritis. And what is RA for those who are unfamiliar out there? Well, let me break it down for you. RA is, I mean, a very simple way is your body's immune system attacking healthy cells and killing them. Therefore, it's kind of damaging, creating abnormal wear and tear on the body. And rheumatoid arthritis usually means that your immune system is attacking soft tissues like cartilage and stuff like that in areas where you move around a lot. And so they're wearing and tearing even faster. It inflames a lot. It does a lot of things which just make your body feel achy and shitty. Now, it's something that a lot of us may go through in life just based on using our bodies a lot. If you run every day, if you're uh, manual labor, you will slowly get arthritis in other areas just due to the physical wear and tear of using something a lot. You know, Just like a car, the more you drive, the more the tires and brakes are gonna get worn. However, rheumatoid arthritis, for some reason your body is creating a similar type of wear and tear without the abnormal use. It's just doing it, it's just attacking it on its own. So in that situation, if you were able to have a drug or a chemical come in and antagonize your immune system, prevent it from working so hard, you could reduce the amount of symptoms you have in rheumatoid arthritis. You could reduce how much wear and tear is happening from your immune system, which will you know buy you a longer quality of life or more use of those appendages or those functions. So most of the time we are trying to promote the body. To do its best work, right? Live your best life. But there are times, you know, for those of us who are anxious or when you're depressed, where your body's actually locked into a cycle where it's creating more damage than it's promoting of health. And that could be genetic, it could be nutrition-related, it could be behavioral. As we said, you know, every factor, it could be light doing it to you, you know, every factor really matters. And so sometimes we do want to create an effect with an agonist binding. Sometimes we want to prevent an agonist from doing its work when it's operating against us. And that would be an antagonist binding, blocking that action, creating defense. Now, because these two things are there, you know, THC, for instance, likes to bind to both CB1 and CB2. Funny enough, CBD is a partial antagonist at CB1. And that means it blocks THC from working as well. As I said, uh, in part three, what is probably the summation of all of this, we'll go over a lot of that more focally. But just as an example, you know, if you take in THC, at least at CB1, CBD will block its action and weaken it, which for some folks may mean less paranoia. It may mean less peaks and valleys, less like racy thinking, which could be a good thing You know, if you were able to mix the two so they can manage each other. So, that's something that we see an antagonist, right? It's blocking THC at the site, preventing it from scoring as easily. It doesn't mean it's not scoring at all. It's just not scoring as easily. And then if you're in a situation where you really want to stop the, the agonist, you know, you use a strong antagonist, that antagonist may block the site fully and not allow anything to bind. And this is not something you find too often in science. You know, We're not usually trying to stop something hard. But there is an area, and as I said, I'm employed in in the dispensary life. I talk to a lot of med pros who have had amazing amounts of experiences uh, in their lives, and some of them reminded me they've worked at like uh, you know needle clinics or places where drug rehab happens. So here I am, a young professor trying to understand binding relationships in the world, and one very very good uh, med pro, Tom Dania, a phenomenal human being, let alone uh, also phenomenal medical professional, told me, oh. We ever hear of Narcan? And I'm like, yeah, Narcan. I've seen enough, you know, procedural cop dramas to know Narcan is what they might use on someone who overdosed on a specific drug. I want to say heroin, but again, I'm not a doctor. Don't hold me to that at least. And he's like, well, here's the thing with Narcan, you know, what happens is the opiate, the heroin, whatever drug they've taken, is binding to their body real aggressive, to the point where it may kill them. You know, that's what an overdose may do. It overwhelms the body with those kind of chemical bindings. So they want to introduce an antagonist so you don't die, right? They want to stop the action from happening. Even though that'll stop your high, it's going to stop you from lulling into death. So they might, you know, jam something in you, some Narcan. And what Narcan is going to do is it's going to antagonize that chemical. It's going to prevent it from binding. It's going to make that person come right out of that high. And what at least Tom had mentioned to me, In his amazing experiences, he's like, you know, when somebody's literally like in the process of dying from overdose and then you save their life, they will often come up swinging. I was like, what do you mean swinging? He's like, because you literally just took them out of the greatest experience they've had. So great so that it kills them. It's so intense. It's so overwhelmingly chemical. And so you just pulled them from the pearly gates idea. You just pulled them from that light that they were going to. They are pissed because, you know, assumably their lives uh, is them trying to constantly achieve that sort of pleasure stimulation. So truly, from a chemical side, it makes sense. Yeah, I don't want you to die if you've overdosed, so I'm going to use an antagonist to prevent this other drug from occupying the receptor and killing you. So there are a couple times that we do utilize antagonists in medicine, when the body's overactive, when other chemicals are. You know, poison control, if you ate something you shouldn't have, you might use an antagonist to prevent it from poisoning you fully, you know, something to counteract its action. And this is where antagonists come in. So it is similar enough to stories, right? Where you have a hero, the thing that's trying to occupy the site, and then the villain, which is preventing that hero from occupying it. But now that we see in our biology, do all the variety of things, sometimes you want the villain to win, you want the antagonist to win, to stop the drug from overwhelming you and taking control. And that way we might have an antagonist really preventing all access to the site, not just some of the access. Now that is why we say there's so many different colors and it's like a light switch because there are many, many ways that this can go. And to add one more flavor to this, we'll talk about what is called an allosteric modulator. Now to this point we had the receptor and the ligand, and they might bind with an agonist where it creates an activation of the site. It creates a change. You might have it with the antagonist where it blocks that action or creates no change and prevents change from happening. And these are all happening at the same, the same chair, right? The same doorway is being blocked, right? If there's a bouncer at a club and he's in the way of the door, you're probably not getting in, which means he's the antagonist and you're the agonist, which is now agonizing that you can't get to the site just for some fun wordplay. However, maybe there's a side door. Maybe there's another way in, or at least another way to interact. And so the active site where most of this is going on, the main entrance at the receptor is called the orthosteric site. The secondary site, what they call the modulatory site, is called the allosteric site. So one is the ortho, one is the allo. And we're gonna be at the allo-allo site, right? The allosteric one. The allosteric site, which is also called the regulatory site. I kind of think of it like, uh, you know, if you ever think of like a prison, traditional prison yard, you have these watchtowers that are up making sure nobody escapes, right? Make sure everybody's doing what they're supposed to. Most of the time, those guys with the rifles and the watchtowers, they're not doing a whole lot. They're just watching. So in a way, they're supervising, right? They're managing from a secondary position. You have the main gate into the prison, which is, of course, highly regulated, lock and key, guards on both sides, you know, buzz you in. But then there's also people above that which are looking at the main site, at the main entrance, and making sure everything is going okay. That way from the eye in the sky, from the bird's eye view, from the crow's nest, they can make sure nothing else is happening outside of the view. And so we all know that, you know, if you're really gonna run somewhere appropriately, you should have full supervision, full observation, and in the body, we have a similar setup. Whereas all of this agonism and antagonism is happening at the main doorway, at the main orthosteric site, at the secondary site, we have other modulation happening at the allosteric site. So when we say something is an allosteric modulator, we say it goes to that secondary watchtower and looks down and kind of makes sure everything is going okay. It's a manager. It's not creating direct effects, but it might create indirect effects, or it may change the conditions that those other effects are created in. And this is something that cannabinoids are also performing as all this is going on. So a great example of this is we know that THC binds to CB1 and CB2. It is an agonist. We also now know that CBD is a partial antagonist at CB1 so it is trying to slap CB1 away and prevent it from binding as easily like defense. But at CB2, CBD is an allosteric modulator. So what that means is it goes to the watchtower, not to the main binding site. It goes to the secondary one and it supervises and it tries to make sure everything's A-OK. And so that's one reason why the, per, the effects at CB2 may be less perceivable depending on what you take. Because some of the binding that happens there is indirect. And thus the feelings you get are going to be indirect, secondary, tertiary, kind of just the frame of the picture, not the main characters in the story. And as you think about that, now we realize, man, we were just dealing with all of these different ways of binding at the main site. And now there's another site where there's even more stuff going on. And that's, between two different, you know, CB1 and CB2, let alone all these other cannabinoid receptors in our body that may or may not be identified in the future, and then other ones like GABA, 5-HT, the TerpV1 receptor. So if we haven't understood that there's a lot of variety in this, uh, then we understand very little because we can see that there is a lot going on and it seems to go on in many degrees of function all the time. And so that really makes us back away and go, okay, so here I have a cell, 10 to 40,000 receptors on it potentially. CB1, CB2s, all in different amounts, all in different blossom, all in different concentrations. So, how do I get high? Well, the crowd of receptors, some of which are clapping, some of which are asleep, some of which are waking up, between CB1 and CB2, as we have CBD and THC fight for the receptor site, they're fighting AEA and 2AG for a similar chairs in the room, right? They're all the similar doorways they all use. And they're binding at tens to hundreds of times in a minute, in a second, potentially, depending on the action that the body requires. And this is what creates that feeling of like, oh man, I'm pretty stoned or dude, I I need to eat something. You have to think, oh my gosh, this is incredible. So many cells in the body are involved in just creating a basic general feeling. And that's why Different strains, different times of day, your mood, your memory, your experiences will all have a constant effect on exactly how these processes go. I mean, maybe one minute you're real happy, you just ate a good meal, you're thinking about positive things, and you have receptors blooming and blossoming in certain areas, expressing themselves. But then, you know, you open up that mail and it's a huge bill for, I don't know, something like your energy bill in Texas, let's say, and it's $10,000. And all of a sudden, you were happy to survive. And now your thoughts have changed. And because your thoughts have changed, your mood has changed. But how does your mood actually change? Well, as you have that thought happen, you may have certain receptors move away from activity, certain receptors move towards activity, you know, what they might call blooming and dying in that way, just like flowers do in the morning, you know, they close up during the night to keep themselves warm and Prevent the environment from hurting them. And then when the sun's out, you know, trees will lean towards the sun, things will grow towards it. This is the kind of leaning of the audience in our body of all of these receptors doing things all of the time. So don't try to put your finger on it. It is not worth it. There's too much going on to be able to say any one thing is going on by itself. We really just noticed the one thing that broke through the crazy dance of all these other effects that are part of our consumption. And even more so beyond our consumption of cannabis, this is also seemingly the dance that's happening with all matter that is interacting with our bodies with free radicals coming in from radiation, from the sun, uh, from temperatures changing uh, the way our skin feels and how that makes us react internally. And if that affects our mood or our mood and our memory, I know there's a time at uh, work the other day I'd cleaned off my car and was still freezing from the uh, activity. I told folks like, no, don't tell me anything right now. I'm so cold. I can't even really hear anything. Like my body's too overwhelmed with just dealing with the cold and the shivering and the the burning feeling in your fingers that uh, if you're going to try to ask me something technical, like I won't even hear it. My body's overwhelmed with the expression of dealing with the cold. And so it's showing that, you know, almost anything can come in and create that blockage. You know, as much as cell or uh, receptor binding, cellular reception, and all those other communicational pathways are important. They're really just describing things we already know because we already have this experiences. Thankfully, science is catching up to them in being able to describe why there is already so much nuance, why there's already so much variety. But for some folks out there, they may think medical marijuana or weed in general. I'm just going to turn into, you know, the mystery team. I'm going to turn to shaggy. I'm going to not remember anything. going to sound like I like I smoke too much weed, man. Like everything's just too easy, man. I can't really think of anything that's going to upset me, you know, from constantly creating a disassociation and a habitual form. But for all of that, I would say people who drink alcohol all the time, you know, we all know wine snobs and, and people who are way into hops and IPAs and stuff. So it's, it's not to say that you have to turn into a caricature. Everybody's biological splay of receptors is different. So some folks who might have a similar splay as good old mystery van, maybe they will end up a little bit more like that classic hippie, but there's no way you can guarantee we're too different and we're different every day, constantly moving forward. And so as long as we accept that variety, we really can look forward to each experience as unique instead of what a lot of folks do, which is only identify the value of an experience by how well it relates to an already established value. In that way, we no longer appreciate new things. We only think new things of value if they are similar enough to the old thing to relate. And that is where we can destroy things like truly finding new ways of becoming healthy, new ideas, innovation, growth, progress, evolution. I don't know. Those words sound pretty pretty jazzy to me. And I think they all require that level of be confident in what you are, but look forward to what you're going to become. Because much like with cannabis science, technically you never were. You're just, you're water. You're flowing down the river and you can't really point out one piece of water. It's already just a part of that river. And as much as you welcome the flow of life, we'll be able to welcome in treating ourselves with something which also seems to flow only. It's hard to nail down cannabis as a single serving isolated molecule. It seems to do a lot better when we eat it like a whole food, like whole nutrition. We include everything. So we allow ourselves to have a to have access to everything. And for me, my use of cannabis, my getting off of ibuprofen, like I mentioned earlier, the whole goal was to include more life. And I realized ibuprofen, amongst other things, is more of the antagonist. It blocks my ability to perceive certain things. It blocked my ability to feel empathetic. It blocks my ability to feel pain. And if I don't feel my pain, how will I ever empathize with yours? because I have no perceptive ability to relate. So, man, my back hurts, let me take some ibuprofen, and then I work with somebody else, my back hurts too. And I'm like, whatever, my back hurts, we're all in the same boat. There's no empathy in that. I didn't even allow them to become a part of my life. I cut, I antagonized, right, and I pushed it away. And they've shown that you know certain drugs that do that in your body can encourage it to others as well, like you start treating other people just like your medicine treats you. It's why when there's an opiate problem in an area, It's usually noticeable beyond simply the medicating, you know, the society starts to tank due to the fact that people are not available to live their lives as much. They're blocking feelings. They're blocking experiences by taking things that literally remove your ability to even feel. If you can't feel pain, can you really feel pleasure as much? You know, the absence of pain is not pleasure and the absence of malady is not health. And as we look at the complexity of how cannabis treats the body, we finally get a good view of what a lot of other areas of science are catching up to. Stop cutting pieces off. Start including more because a life of inclusion is a life that is full. And if you want to be fulfilled, then maybe fill things fully. It just kind of seems to make sense. And that means positive and negatives. That means allowing everything to come together. You know, the more you remove, the less you have. And so, although that is kind of a philosophical end to what is our part two of looking at receptor binding, you know, we're looking very micro, but it still, it still has a lot of value in the macro area. You know, although this might be just how a cell works, if a cell benefits from it, so can our lives as we are simply a collection, a teamwork of cells. And boy, when certain cells stop behaving properly, don't we know it right away? as we said, just like the car, when it's not functioning, I can't always pinpoint exactly what part is broken, but it is undeniable that something is out of balance. And if you're able to identify a problem, sometimes that's just as important as being able to solve it as they are siblings in the the family of growth. Now that's all I have for you today. And if you enjoy this kind of content, please like, share, and subscribe what I call the LSS stance. And I would say even more so just share it with a friend, you know, the cannabis is tough. And I think especially the stigma that comes along with it, it makes us all children, right? We're always hiding things like stealing a cookie. You don't want to hide it from your parents. You don't want to tell them the truth. And society has encouraged this behavior for a very long time. So although you might not be able to put it out on your social media, I don't want anybody losing their jobs. You might not be able to tell your immediate partner or your immediate family, depending on where you are on the planet. But share it with somebody you think it could benefit. To me, that's why I do it. And I think that's a big part of why people may even listen. Because if we can spread it one at a time, we can, just like cells in our bodies, slowly heal. Just making sure each cell is on board. You know, full health requires the inclusion of all things. And uh, until next time... We'll have part three coming up in about a week. Uh, Feel free to send me anything you're thinking about for topics, reactions. Uh, If you like what I was saying, if you disagree with what I was saying, I'm on Instagram, on IG, so feel free to DM me there at thecannabis.professor. More to come for you folks soon. Hope you enjoy the rest of your wintry Sunday. Until next time, stay safe and get medicated.